And now the reading, traditionally set for the second Sunday of Epiphany, from the Gospel of John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John, the way it's laid out. It's uh, in the first two-thirds of the book, what's known by scholars as the Book of Signs, and each one is identified as a sign, and this is the first one. And of course, there's all kinds of conjecture about why there are seven, what it means, and where they, each of them lead, and all of those sorts of things. But this is the first sign, and it's important that it's a sign, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there's something definitely wrong in this story right from the beginning. The wine has run out. The wine has failed. It's given out. It's, it's over. And this is no small matter, of course, because a wedding was a cultural, vital event in any clan grouping, in any village. It was about bringing the clan together. Most weddings, of course, were and, and have been for most of human history until we decided that love was a better idea than arrangement. And I don't know, the jury would have to still be out, wouldn't it, as to whether we've done a good job of that? But all marriages were arranged, so the idea was that clans would get together and arrange uh, the wedding, sometimes before the children were even old enough uh, to stand up. And that some of that was for um, keeping the clans in good company with each other so that it wasn't fighting. It was also really important to keep the land together. Particularly at this point in time, we know now in the, that in the first century, uh, the land of Galilee was going through an enormous political and ec economic change. Land was being grabbed from the, the rural poor that, that had originally owned it in whatever uh, meaning of ownership they had. 
and it was being given to the rich landowners of Rome and being given to returned soldiers. Um, you, if you were dragooned into the Roman army, you were often told if you serve a certain number of years, seven or 14 usually, uh, then you would be given a plot of land. Well, they were starting to run out of land in Italy, so they were starting to take it from the provinces. So there are all kinds of things going on. So to keep a family group together, to keep uh, villages together, you really needed decent weddings because they sealed decent marriages. And here, we're in serious trouble. And it's not just about celebration. It's not just that the celebration is going to grind to a halt and leave people embarrassed. Wine was what we would use for water. It was the only way of being able to drink safely. That water, you, nobody drank water. The, in fact, the water was used for washing, and the, the only way you could drink was to drink wine or beer to be safe. So the wine running out was a major issue. So why had it run out? Were they the people so poor that they couldn't gather enough wine together? I mean, there, there was a tradition, not unlike we do today. If you go to someone's house, you might drink, take a drink with you. Maybe the people who were coming couldn't afford to bring any more. Maybe there was no wine to be had anywhere because the Romans, in their, they, they loved wine, by the way, and they were putting in vineyards uh, more, more than anyone else. Uh, and maybe they were putting in vineyards and taking the wine. But something is broken. When something like this happens, it's like the canary in the coal mine. If something like this happens, something else is going on. If the suicide rate in Australia continues to hover so high, particularly amongst young men and old men, lots of people, but, but those two groups particularly, that's a sign of something, isn't it? We, we're not 100% sure what it is. There's lots of reasons, but we ought to be paying attention. And we sort of are and we're sort of not. Governments every now and then sort of rise, rise up and say, well, we'll do a little bit more for mental health. But we're not sure. When it turns out that we can't buy toilet paper and bread in the supermarket, not because there is no toilet paper and bread, but because we can't figure out how to get it from there to there, we realise that something is wrong. And some of that is to do with the fact that we've got a gig economy where people are being paid a small amount of money to do the most important jobs in the community. These are stress signs that something deeply is wrong. Now remember, I said this is a sign. It's not a miracle. Now, it might be a miracle, but that's not the important bit. The important bit is it's pointing to something. So here are the things that are happening in the sign. Some of them. There's lots of things that you could read into this. I mean, one of the interesting things is why Jesus speaks to his mother in the way that he does. And it, it's, he talks, he calls her woman. Um, but most scholars recognise this as, as actually a form of respect. It's, it would be what, how we would use the word madam. Um, not that we use it much um, in our culture. In fact, when I used to live in the South in the United States, I learned very quickly to call women, particularly women older than me, madam. And then when I came back to Australia, I kept using it, and people thought I was taking the mickey, that I was playing a joke. You know, different cultures have different ways of doing it, but the understanding is that Jesus was speaking with respect to his mother. The woman who, by the way, only appears at this point in the gospel, his mother, and then again at the foot of the cross. So there's a whole bunch of things we could look at with all of that. 
But if this is a sign, the first thing it tells us is that life is being restored. Without water that you can turn into wine, no one lives. You know, you can live for days and days without eating. We can't live very long without drinking. That life has been restored. This is one of the great elements of this sign. Life is being restored. This is what we believe in. This is what we care for. This is why organisations like churches, particularly churches, with all the things that we believe, the thing that we just read in the psalm, should be involved in environmental activism and in calling us as a community and our governments to live fully and respectfully in the earth. We, we have no choice. This is our calling because we're all about the restoration of life. And at the moment, in many parts of the world and in many parts of Australia, we're discovering if we don't change the way we live, we will not be able to restore anything. We all know great swathes of South Australia that have now salt pans. And they're saying many, many thousands of years for some of those salt pans to be restored to the point where you could grow crops in it. So this is why we have to be involved in this story over and over again. And of course, we know that about individuals. We need the, the restoration of all of our own lives. And it's not just life individually that's being restored, but community is being restored. That, the, that by having the wine, the wedding guests are, are in a sense glued back together as one community. What's needed to restore community? Well, we're recognising in our culture the individualisation of our, the atomization of our culture. And it's both been a tremendous boom when you can now make your own choices about how you will live your life. You're not required to fit into, hopefully, a gender stereotype or a family stereotype or any other stereotype. You should be able to make, be free and do what you want. And we are to an extent. But by doing that, we also lose something. And we're seeing that with COVID, aren't we? Some people deciding that they will not get a vaccine because they don't believe they're in any danger of getting the disease because they're young and healthy, which turns out not to be true, but, but that's an argument. But it's an argument from individuality, not an argument from what will this mean for the people around me? If I wander around more susceptible to a disease that might not kill me or make me even very sick, but might give it to people for whom that's not true. We're wanting to say, well, hang on, that's, that's not how we do community. We, in fact, we can't be a community if that's the only way we think. We have to do these things together. And we're seeing that with the way we're treating vulnerable workers, aren't we, everywhere. That it turns out the people who are most important to our community are the ones we treat the poorest and pay the least. This, is, this sign is about the restoration of community, but it's more than just the restoration. It's also a kind of recreation because Jesus doesn't just turn enough water into wine to satisfy the last guests at a drunken wedding. Jesus says in John chapter 10, so not much later than this story, I have come that you might have life. And then he doesn't stop there, but you might have it in all its abundance. The word that we read in the psalm. In every sense of abundance. That's the kind of life I'm bringing. I want life, Jesus is saying, to be like it was supposed to be in the garden. You can eat, God said, the fruit of every tree. 
It's all yours. I know there's a caveat at the end. The lawyers will remind us of that. You know, but this one, and there's all kinds of stories about why we weren't supposed to eat from the tree of life. We're not talking about that today. It's a great story. But you can eat of all that. This is the way the world is supposed to be. A world full of abundance. This, the, the estimate is that this would have made 1,300 bottles of wine. That'd be all right, Noel, wouldn't it? Jeff? 1,300 bottles of wine, particularly if it's of the right sort. You know, some Hill of Grace or some Grange Hermitage. 1,300 bottles of Grange Hermitage. That's what we're talking about. Just This is a ridiculous amount. This is what abundance is. It's just over the top. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The purpose of the sign is not just to point to the restoration, but to the recreation, the, the bringing into life now the world as it has always been meant to be, where every human being is alive, fully functioning, welcome everywhere by everyone, standing tall. So how does it happen? Well, C.S. Lewis and other writers have pointed out this has always been happening. The earth has always turned water into wine. It's easy. You grow some grapes. Well, you don't actually grow them. The earth grows them. You watch them grow. And then you pull them off the vine. And then you don't actually do very much. And you've got wine. We've been doing this. The earth has been doing this. We've been watching it and enjoying it for centuries. It's one of the oldest non-water drinks that we have. We don't really know how it happens. I know that you can go and study viticulture and you can go and study winemaking and we're glad, those of us who love wine, we're glad that people do that because we have some extraordinary uh, experiences with wonderful wine. And we, so we can sort of know about it chemically, but it sort of just happens. And winemakers, like a lot of creative people, spend a lot of time kind of thinking and watching not actually doing anything. And there it is. It just appears. And in this story, it's exactly like that. This is the weirdest story ever. Because if it was about a really good miracle, you would think it would all be about the wine. But this is what it says. Jesus says, pour some of the water out, take it to the steward. And then it says, when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know, skipped over it. it they, what we would call bury the lead. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know, it's like me saying to you, well, I, I, I went for breakfast with my brother and then, um, oh, and then I won a million dollars in the lottery and then in the afternoon I did the washing and wait a minute, go back to that bit after you... Why would you not? What's going on here? We don't know what's going on because it happens almost mysteriously. Like all good epiphanies. An ordinary thing. Wine, there's plenty of it. Turns out there's not, but more comes. How? Well, just says the water that had become wine. Who knows? This is another aside. We could spend an hour on this. Who knows? The servants. All the people here know? All the ones, they have got a clue what's going on. Who knows? The people right at the bottom. That's going to become a theme all the way through John's Gospel. Who knows what's going on in Luke's Gospel? Shepherds. Who knows what's going on in Matthew's Gospel at the beginning? Three, five, twelve, two, we don't know. 
people, probably men, maybe wise, from the east. Somebody completely outside of the world as it's understood. Who knows what's going on? Not the people who are supposed to. It's a great mystery. It's a great mystery. The sign is mysterious and you have to look for it, just like we do in this painting. It's not all that obvious. You have to look for it. In fact, it's not even clear who's the wine steward. Most people think it's the guy in the green over to the left of the painting. But it could also be the guy in the white over on the right of the painting. It's a mystery. We don't know. Like all great epiphanies, you just live in the world and a moment arises... And if you're paying attention, it becomes something glorious. Better stop. Patrick White, our only Nobel Prize winner uh, for literature in Australia. If you don't count J.M. Kutsia, but he, he got it before he came to Adelaide. Patrick White said he had an epiphany. He was out the back with the chooks. He was in Can- uh, Canberra, it had been raining, there was mud. He was going to feed the chooks. He slipped on the mud, landed flat on his back, looked up at the sky. And in, in that instant, he had a sense of his own place in the universe and the fact that there was, as he, the language he used, there was a divine experience. Couldn't be anything more normal than that. And it became for him a moment of glorious epiphany. A moment when... What what uh, what um, um, Joyce James Joyce calls the soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. The soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. Let's stop. But somewhere in there, there's an epiphany in this story. Thanks, Eula.